I think a lot of studies have come out in, you know, individual jurisdictions and states across the country about what we need to do. And it's not, um, I, hate, I hate to say it's not rocket science, but in, in many ways it's not. And it's just a choice of whether or not we want to dedicate funds and resources and make changes in that way. But it hasn't always looked like this and it doesn't have to. And I, and I hope we get the motivation as a, as a state and as a country to, to really make meaningful change and get people off the streets. It's so much easier to keep people housed than it is to get them into housing once once they've lost uh, that stability and that, that place of refuge. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled. In cities across our nation, homelessness is an ongoing problem. According to the 2020 Annual Homeless Assessment Report to Congress, completed by the Department of Housing and Urban Development before COVID struck, Roughly about 580,000 people were experiencing homelessness in the United States on a single night in 2020. This number represented the fourth consecutive year in which homelessness increased nationwide. While the severity of this problem has led to some high-profile conflicts on how to address this crisis, in April of this year, Federal District Court Judge David Carter issued a 109-page order necessitating the city and county of Los Angeles to find shelter for all unhoused residents of Skid Row, as well as requiring an audit of any spending related to the homeless. Alleging that Judge Carter's ruling is a violation of the separation of powers, the city and county appealed the matter to the Ninth Circuit, who heard arguments last week earlier this month. So how do we combat homelessness? And is enough being done by city officials? Well, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we'll be discussing these legal issues and everything surrounding homelessness. We'll take a look at how it's been approached in the courts, the current legislation, what's being done to combat this national problem. And to do that, we've got a great show for you today. Our first guest is Professor Gary Blasey from UCLA School of Law and founding and core faculty of the law school's unique David J. Epstein Program in Public Interest Law and Policy. He's an expert on public policy and the law with an emphasis on the homeless and poor. Blasey has researched extensively and written about the advocacy on behalf of children in substandard schools, homeless families, and individuals, including homeless veterans low-income tenants, low-wage workers, and victims of discrimination. He's also conducted studies on the effect of law enforcement programs and activities on homelessness in downtown Los Angeles, apt to our discussion today. Welcome to the show, Gary. Very glad to be here. And next up, we have Brianne Schuster. She is the staff attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union of Washington Foundation. And she works on a wide range of civil rights issues, including the housing crisis and economic justice, fighting to protect and advance the civil rights of Washingtonians. Welcome to the show, Brianne. Thanks so much for having me. Well, Gary, as we get started, David Carter in his order included a little bit of history about how Los Angeles has treated homelessness over the decades. Can you give us a little bit of background about Judge Carter's order and that history? Sure. Judge Carter has been uh, in Los Angeles looking at the uh, terrible homelessness problem that we have 
in a litigation that was brought by some, mostly by property owners in the downtown area, which is adjacent to Los Angeles' Skid Row, which is the highest concentration of unhoused and, and homeless people. After months and months of talking to everybody who knew anything, he issued at the request of the plaintiffs a preliminary injunction that ran on to 109 pages and basically covered the history of homelessness in Los Angeles and particularly the role of uh, systemic structural racism in that process. And at the end of the order, he directed the city of Los Angeles and the county of Los Angeles to find housing for all of the uh, uh, homeless people in Skid Row in a matter of, uh, of months and some additional orders initially, for example, to uh, sequester, for the city to sequester a billion dollars so that uh, they would have the resources to do that and, and many other things. Brianna, just for a moment, I'd like to jump back to my uh, civil procedure class in law school. And if I remember correctly, mandatory injunctions are frowned upon, uh, prohibitory injunctions are encouraged. This seems like a lot more than a mandatory injunction. <laughs> yeah, I and I'll uh, I'll have to defer to Gary on some of the, <laughs> the inner workings of the order, which I assure you I've read, but um, it is quite lengthy. But to your point, it it is, um, and it's kind of a unprecedented order in a lot of ways. And I know that many advocates were really excited about at least you know the first part of it, but I know there are also concerns about some of the unintended consequences of, of what the order might actually mean for folks that are houseless in uh, Los Angeles. Gary, what's, what's the gist of the order here, and what's been the discussion at the Ninth Circuit about it? The gist of the order is that city and the county have to find shelter, not housing, but shelter sort of undefined. Uh, and that's one thing that does concern advocates because we've got a lot of bad experience with bad shelters. And that's one of the reasons we have so many people on the street is that the shelter system is, in their view, uh, inferior to living on a, in a tent on a sidewalk. And the gist is basically that of all of the problems in Los Angeles related to homelessness, they should focus on Skid Row. Now, Skid Row has a small percentage of the 66,000 unhoused people in Los Angeles County, of whom 48,000 lack shelter, and there may be about 4,000 people in Skid Row who are, who are homeless. So the objection from the city and the county has been, it's not really the place of a federal judge to decide how to allocate resources and prioritize things, and uh, he's really overstepped his bounds. And they made that point before a panel of the Ninth Circuit on an appeal from the preliminary injunction, the, um, the hearing on which was last week. There were three, uh, and what the odds are now in the Ninth Circuit, but they're not great, three Obama appointees who heard it. And um, I watched the argument. They seem to be quite uh, understanding of the motivation of Judge Carter, as am I. Uh, he's looking at a terrible situation and trying to do something about it. But as you mentioned, uh, Craig, we do have things like the federal rules of civil procedure and case law about equity of power of the jurisdiction of judges and, and so on. And so that, I think, is where the um, order is going to probably fall, fall down and, and uh, not be sustained. 
Right, and I, I, I was surprised. I mean, that Eric Garcetti in one day announces that he's going to invest a billion dollars into homelessness, and then you know, shortly thereafter, out comes an order from Judge Carter that says that billion dollars goes into escrow. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, I think that's that's amazing. And again, I my sympathies are with Judge Carter yeah, because I know what he's trying to do, but that's just not something that a, that a federal judge has any any business doing, quite frankly. That's the kind of decision that's classically reserved to the political branches. As inefficient and troubling as they may be, that's what we have. Well, Brianna, Judge uh, Carter's frustration is certainly bubbling over justifiably, and I understand that there's been some similar situations in Seattle and in Washington. Yes, absolutely. I mean, Washington has also one of the worst housing crises and rates of homelessness in the country. And Seattle as well has, you know, a city um, that has one of the highest rates as well. And so these issues are certainly popping up. We have a few cases, well, a few is uh, an under <laughs> underrepresentation, but a number of cases here that have been brought we, we, with respect to how how government entities are treating folks that are forced to live outside generally due to no fault of their own. We haven't yet seen a court order city to, you know, affirmatively provide shelter or affirmatively provide housing, but I I wouldn't be surprised if that's sort of the direction in which courts are going to have to start taking as we see more and more cities criminalizing the existence of folks that are living on public property and have nowhere else to go. You know, we're seeing more and more orders ordering them to not do that and and political bodies are not listening. And so I, I understand and empathize as well with the frustration of Judge Carter of that there are limitations uh, to each branch of power, but at the same time, you can't be violating and trampling on people's constitutional rights. And so there has to be some sort of remedy. <laughs> there certainly does. And and let's talk about that criminalization that you mentioned. That's kind of a, that's a buzzword, as I understand it, in homelessness. And there's a gradient of criminalization. Does it mean when a cop comes along or a policeman comes along to uh, a person is homeless, sleeping on the sidewalk and rustles them and says, move along? Is that criminalization does that where does that standard where where does that bright line fall well the, the ninth circuit in um in boise versus martin uh which is the law of course in california that governs where judge carter is basically has said that so long as there is really no alternative to sleeping on public property then you can't arrest people for doing what human beings have to do which is a human being's can't stand up and walk around all day. They have to lay down at some point, and the rules of uh, property and of gravity mean that the surface of the earth in, in the United States is divided between private and public property. Private properties off, off because of trespass laws, and so you can't make any other horizontal space that's public uh, off limits to people. So that's the kind of simple logic of the Ninth Circuit's decision. But they did leave a lot of room to say that uh, local governments can make decisions about time and place, and so long as there is there is some adequate alternative, adequate and available is the term that they used, then they can enforce uh, laws against sleeping on the sidewalk. And in fact, I should I should have explained in Judge Carter's order, he's basically said, once you do this, you can start enforcing all the laws against uh, sitting, sleeping, or lying on the sidewalk in Skid Row. As long as you provide enough shelter. Right. 
Right. And then the question is, what constitutes shelter, whether it's housing or shelter? And as I understand it, too, the Ninth Circuit framed this in a constitutional standpoint and said that it is cruel and unusual punishment to criminalize people for sleeping on public spaces. Well, the basic underlying principle is that it's cruel and unusual to punish people for the inevitable consequences of being a human being. If people literally don't have any choice but to do what they're doing, then it is cruel and unusual because they're they're not in a position where they are able to comply with those laws and survive according to the to the, the simple biology of the situation. And Brianna, the the NIMBYs, the not in my backyard, and the real estate property owners have always lashed out against homelessness because they allege that there's crimes and drugs and all other types of uh, nefarious activities going on in homelessness. And to some degree, uh, from what we've recently seen in Venice Beach, California, where the homeless have taken over the boardwalk and the city is struggling with how to deal with that, there is certainly some validity to that argument. What's the response? That's a great question. It's, it is certainly one we hear a lot. And I think the first thing that I would say is that, you know, a lot of people in the U.S. use drugs <laughs> and a lot of people commit crimes. And that happens whether you're housed or you're unhoused and whether you're living on the streets or you live in a, you know, a mansion. So that's not a unique issue to folks that are experiencing homelessness. It's just that we treat it differently because it's more visible to us. Um, and I think there's a lot of inherent fear and a perception, um, a misperception and misconception that folks that are, you know, poor or that are visibly homeless commit more crimes or are more likely to have behavioral health issues or use uh, substances. Um, and that's that's actually just patently false. So there's, you know, instead a lot of research that shows that people who are experiencing homelessness are far more likely to be victims of hate crimes and other violent crimes than our other populations. But with respect to how we sort of, and so with respect to how we deal with those issues, I think it's the same as every other, you know, person. We need to be making sure that people have the resources and the services and support that they need to be thriving, whether that's mental health, um, you know, whether that's uh, support with education or, you know, et cetera. Um, and it's also super clear that everyone, you know, needs and deserves a roof over their head and that the more that we're able to provide uh, housing for folks, it often takes care of um, a lot of their other needs in life and they're able to better access treatment if they so need it, if they're able to, you know, gain more stable employment, if that's a barrier currently for them um, and so on. Gary, what are we what are we talking about here in terms of public policy, and and where does this fall into the wave that seems to be crossing America of the so called defund the police, uh, which really means, I think, as most people say, uh, let's see if we can address uh, nonviolent issues in the in the public with social services rather than the police. Uh, where where does public policy play into all of this? Well, Craig, you mentioned uh, Venice Beach, and we've sort of had an experiment in Los Angeles with two big, really big encampments, one in uh, Echo Park in the, near the downtown area and one uh, on the beach. In Echo Park, a massive number of police used really aggressive force unannounced in the middle of the night to basically get people out. And that caused, um, there were a lot of injuries uh, both to unhoused people uh, and to uh, protesters who showed up on short notice. 
In Venice, by contrast, they did it more systematically. Rather than sending the police to talk to people, they sent uh, people from uh, a wonderful nonprofit called the St. Joseph Center. And they basically rehoused people over a period of some weeks, primarily in uh, motel rooms and other short-term interim housing. But basically, the boardwalk is now virtually empty of encampments. Nobody has been arrested and no violence has occurred. So that, I think, um, sort of demonstrates the value of having people who don't carry a gun and, and aren't uh, untrained in dealing with, with folks catch the, uh, catch the responsibility. As often, I mean, the police are charged with um, trying to solve problems that society has uh, ignored for a long time, and they're just not capable of doing it. The only thing the police have ever been able to do with regard to encampments anywhere is to move people from one place to another. No police officer ever housed anyone with maybe a handful of of extraordinary uh, exceptions, but it's really not the way to, to go about it. The other thing is that there's a you know a big structural issue behind all this. Brianne mentioned the fact that most addicts and most people with severe mental health issues are housed, uh, not homeless. It's the combination of poverty and uh, those kinds of disabilities that put a lot of people on the street, and you have to solve them both. So until people have enough income to pay rent or the rent is cheap enough that somebody, for example, in Los Angeles who gets the basic welfare grant of $221 a month until they can buy housing with that, they're going to be homeless. So we have to sort of step back from the individual cases and look at uh, the sort of obvious structural things that are causing people to fall into homelessness and then stay there. Brianne, is the, is the solution just money? Uh, Governor Newsom just signed a homelessness package of $12 billion over the next two years. What is the solution and, and how does the ACLU look at this? Yeah, that, I mean, money is always good. No, <laughs> um, I, I mean, I think we, you know, really believe in, in evidence-based solutions and what every sort of piece of evidence has shown thus far is that the solution really is as simple as, you know, affordable housing. Does that require money? Yes. I think there are also other pieces in Judge Carter's opinion. And I think there's a lot of, you know, science, or sorry, there's a lot of studies showing similar issues here in Washington, which is we have all of these systems of oppression. We have, you know, all of these racist housing laws. We have zoning laws. I mean, there are a lot of other things that we need to be upending that are not just building, you know, massive to, to ensure that housing is not built in a way that's continuing segregation, that's continuing all of these problematic systems that have contributed to homelessness in the first place, and that we're not forcing people into situations that are unsafe or unstable or inadequate and don't meet their needs, but we just don't have to look at them anymore. And so I think for many jurisdictions, increasing housing is is kind of the top priority and that does cost money, um, but there are other systemic challenges, I think, um, some of which Gary mentioned as well, that that do need to be addressed and they're not unique necessarily to homelessness, but impact all of our systems from from the carceral system to, you know, other issues. Gary, let's let's dive in a little bit deeper to the distinction between shelter and housing. You know, it's it's obvious, you know, the shelter kind of open stadium style place where you have cots on the floor and the individual individual housing, whether it be 
tiny housing or motel rooms or hotel rooms. How does all of that play into the issues that we're facing here? Well, you really have to look at it from the perspective of unhoused people and the difference that they see. A shelter means you have a place to sleep for one night. It doesn't get you off the street. You you have to get up and get out at a particular time. You have no expectation of being able to be there for any any period of time. You can have, in Los Angeles, maybe two cubic feet of possessions, everything else you have to give up and so on. So that's not a very attractive thing. And they're also often operated in ways that treat adults as if they were troublesome potential juvenile delinquents or something. And there's no real respect for people's privacy or autonomy or dignity. And, you know, when we talk about housing, or at least when I talk about housing, I'm not talking about anything fancy. I'm talking about a very small apartment that has the ingredient of having some privacy, being able to lock the door, stay 24 hours, and hopefully a window. So, again, we're running these natural experiments, but there's significant evidence, I know, in in Washington um, and Oregon and, and now in California that people in encampments do seem to prefer these these tiny homes, even though they really don't qualify as uh, as housing. And they're certainly not a long-term solution. But I've come down to the position that if you want to know what people need, you have to ask them. Uh, that makes sense. And and what level of, of dignity are we affording? I mean, is, has the Ninth Circuit kind of laid into this and given any indication where the line on cruel and unusual punishment lies? Not that I can see. I mean, they, they have not gone very far down this path. They have said you can't arrest people if there's no place for them to lay down, if they lay down in public, in public property. So there is language in the opinion that talks about adequate and available shelter. So one could presumably litigate the meaning of adequate over, over a number of years. And it does boil down to whether it's, I think, acceptable in a civilized society to consign people to, to places that we would think were untenable in third world countries. Right. I would just add to that too. And I, th- I think that's, that's spot on that there isn't um, a definition of, of what adequate means. Although I think the court in Martin v. Boise somewhat touched upon what adequate is not. <laughs> um, and so there are You know, I think it's clear that if somebody has, for example, a disability and the only option for them is laying on a mat in the floor, like that's not necessarily an adequate or accessible shelter to them. Similarly, if a shelter has to, uh, if you have to meet certain religious requirements or practice a particular religion or to access it, there's, I think, you know, the court of Martin B. Boise and other courts have have affirmed that that is not an adequate and accessible shelter for for people that don't choose to practice religion. So there are some confines of what is not adequate or accessible, but what the actual sort of right is. Um, I'm, I'm not aware that that has been clarified. Well, Brian, speaking of religion, it reminds me of a, of a famous phrase that there will always be poor in the world. You could substitute homeless for poor, are we ever really going to be able to solve this problem or will there always be people on the streets? I hope so. I mean, I think one of the things that is hard to sort of remember now that we've been down this path for so long is that homelessness as it exists in the country wasn't always like this. And it certainly um, has increased over the past decade or so in Washington. And I know it's sort of fluctuated a little bit differently in different states, but it really is about how we 
invest resources in how we choose to treat people uh, in our in our states. And so it, I think a lot of studies have come out in, you know, individual jurisdictions and states across the country about what we need to do. And it's not, um, I, hate, I hate to say it's not rocket science, but in, in many ways it's not. And it's just a choice of whether or not we want to dedicate funds and resources and make changes in that way. But it hasn't always looked like this and it doesn't have to. And I, and I hope we get the motivation as a, as a state and as a country to, to really make meaningful change and get people off the streets. And Gary, what Brianne says reminds me, and I'll give away some of my age here, of something that I saw as a young child that, you know, there were uh, a lot of men that ran, that rode the rails. I think that there was, you know, if we look back at the old Mayberry RFTs and people that lived in rural areas, uh, I think hobos were, were somewhat idealized. What's happened? Well, uh, I think what's happened is that they're no longer out where the tracks are, and they're not. Uh, it was it was always quite inaccurate the romanization. It wasn't exactly a great life. What's really changed, I think, is the visibility of of people, especially as encampments have uh, proliferated. But there's is that just volume? Is that, is that just in the number of homeless? It really is just both the the volume. Well, it is it is the volume, uh, the numbers of people. I started working. Represented my first homeless client in 1983, and at that time, maybe the year or two before that, there were maybe 600, almost all white elderly alcoholics on Skid Row, and homelessness wasn't even a word that was used in in reference to this problem until the early 80s. So we certainly have not gotten poorer as a country since then. Speaking of rocket science, I understand that Jeff Bezos uh, spending a, a billion dollars a year on uh, his uh, space tourism enterprise, and I think is not paying very many taxes. So I think we should we should be able to find some money in some places. It looks like there's plenty of opportunities. Brian Gary raised the concept of how homelessness occurs, and and what the makeup of homeless people. What are you seeing out on the streets these days? Well, at least in Washington, it's a lot of people who, you know, I I mean, the primary driver of homelessness, at least here in Washington, is the lack of affordable housing. So what often happens is for a variety of reasons, mostly because housing price, the housing prices are much higher than wages. And there may be other sort of coupled barriers that folks are experiencing. But due to that, they get pushed out of um they're either never able to to purchase a home or they get pushed out of their home, are forced to rent, and then they're evicted and put on the streets. Um, so it's a very diverse sect of, of folks that are experiencing homelessness, um, disproportionately people of color and disproportionately youth who are LGBTQ and other marginalized groups are, are definitely experiencing homelessness or are more impacted by homelessness in part because of all of these systems that have driven and fueled homelessness in in the first place, in addition to the fact that housing is simply so unaffordable here for so many people. And it's not by accident that, you know, Washington and Seattle have some of the highest rates of rent and housing in the country and uh, that that correlates with much higher rates of folks that are experiencing homelessness. Gary, we're currently in a moratorium on evictions. Yes. COVID has caused some of the, some issues. There have been a lot of people who have decided not to work. So when this is all over and that plug gets pulled, 
What's going to happen? Well, this is actually what I've been working on for the last year as a sort of homeless prevention, anti-eviction process. Right now, the census estimated as of two weeks ago, there were a million people in California behind on their rent and another million and a half who uh, didn't think they could make rent in the next month or two. So we have some money coming from the federal government and from the state, but it's really not reaching either landlords or tenants at a very rapid clip right now. So we are uh, sort of facing a cliff uh, unless things improve both in terms of the availability of resources, but um, but also just the operation of these these programs. And and just to give you an idea and to emphasize something Brianne said, even before COVID in Los Angeles County, there were 600,000 people in uh, families that were spending 90% of their income on rent. And all of those people were poised on the precipice of homelessness. And every month, about 20,000 of them were falling off. And some of them stayed there. So I worry that the fallout here is going to make our problem so much worse. It's so much easier to keep people housed than it is to get them into housing once once they've lost uh, that stability and that, that place of refuge. And Gary, I know we've been talking extensively about California and Prian Washington, but can we take what we've just talked about and put it in any city in America? I think so. I mean, I think Brian's right that the West Coast in particular has tremendously tight housing market and has done a very bad job of producing housing at the low end of the market. But uh, I think what we're talking about exists in every uh, in every location, and we're beginning to see cases and in, in controversies like Boise versus Martin in Tennessee and Oklahoma and Texas and in all over the country. This controversy may be most intense in, on the West Coast, but it's a national issue. Building off of something that that we talked about a little bit earlier too, I think one of the reasons I that this controversy around homelessness, I think, is so prominent on places like the West Coast is because of its increased visibility. And, you know, other, there are, I'm thinking of like New York, for example, also has a fairly significant homelessness population, but a lot of folks are forced into shelter. And I think as we're seeing, and that's not necessarily a good solution either, but so, so in many ways, yes, it can be applied across the country and how it looks might be a little bit different as far as whether somebody's on a sidewalk or in a temporary shelter for a night. And I think it'll be interesting. And I think we have a duty, particularly with, with seeing the consequences of climate change and all of these the West Coast being more covered in smoke and having more dramatic weather of of really this need to be coming up with a solution to get folks into stable housing. Well, it looks like we've just about reached the end of our program, so I'd like to take this opportunity to invite both Gary and Brianne to share their final thoughts and contact information. Brianne, let's start with you. Yeah, thank you. Um, no, this has been a great discussion and I'm happy to uh, talk with, with anyone. Our website is www.aclu-wa.org and we have contact information on there for both me and if folks have uh, you know any issues that they're facing in Washington, contact for our intake line as well. Great, thank you. And Gary? And my uh, contact information is an anagram of uh, ACLU. It's uh, UCLA at the law school. It's just my last name at law.ucla.edu. I'm happy to hear folks' thoughts. And in terms of a last thought, one thing I would like to emphasize is it is well within our capacity to solve this problem. 
It really is just a matter of will and resources and priorities. We do not have to live in a country that has the problem that we have now. Right. Well, thank you. And I'd like to take this opportunity as well to thank both Professor Gary Blasey and Brianne Schuster for joining us today. It was a pleasure having both of you on the show. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Craig. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. And for our listeners, if you like what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.